I would like to acknowledge that the Teach Reach podcast is operating on the unceded traditional territories of the Matsky, Kwantlen, Ketsi, and Semihamu First Nations. Growing up on ancestral territory of the Taino people, and now as an uninvited guest on Turtle Island, I recognize the immense impact that the land has had on me. The land has taught me respect, reciprocity, reverence, humility, and responsibility. Through indigenous knowledges, I learned that the land carries stories, histories, medicine, and gifts that enable us to reflect and connect with ourselves and our communities. As a stories-focused podcast, I understand the value of investigating place and space to grapple with real-world issues. I seek to support the ways that indigenous peoples are using to protect their land and communities. It is my intention to continue learning how to properly honor and care for the place where I live. Welcome to Teach Reach, a podcast to explore human connections through shared stories. Stories are what we store in the vault of our heart. Through them, we are exposed to a variety of voices to understand the narratives that shape our communities. We are all stories, those we know, those we live through, those we fabricate, and those we wish to deconstruct. However, we are not always at the center of those stories. We teach, you reach. Hey Tungi, tell me about David. David Archer is an anti-racist psychotherapist, an author and a father from Montreal. Um, the conversation was really, really beautiful. We connected on his ancestry. He's from, he has like Jamaican ancestry and, and the cross path of how, you know, Jamaica influenced Haiti and, and vice versa as well into their, their quest for freedom in the Caribbean. Um, he is very, very passionate about um, how the system is, is being like detrimental to our to our healing how do we need to heal because of the system so we talk about systemic racism we talk about um the, the fight that um all of us we have to take in order to make our society better um, we talk about white insecurity black suffering and also how it's not that clear cut how we are all into you know that fight together um he's an author so he's he wrote books on you know afrofuturism to provide a space where you know we can see black people existing in literature in, in in science fiction right so overall a beautiful beautiful conversation i i felt full after that conversation i felt empowered i felt seen um and and i hope that the the audience will will feel that as well once again, we're asking everyone to share, to give us a review, to give us five stars, um, to, to share that podcast because we want to get to have, you know, those big names as Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar. Those are the people that I have on my list, on my vision board. So give us five stars, share the podcast. If you don't give us five stars, I think you are a hater. So share the podcast and enjoy the ride. I, I need to get this, <laughs> this yes. down. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, would you like to for you to start, or you want me to start? Oh no, man, go ahead. You were talking about 
You were talking about talking about um, Haiti. How about Haiti, right? Yeah, and you're one of the descendants of the original freedom fighters, and how important it is uh, to just know that uh, that your people were able to. Uh, it's like the 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 uh, the knowledge of the fighting of being able to fight back an oppressor, which is France. Uh, they tried to prevent our uh, our other ancestors, our cousins in the United States from learning about this be out of fear that it would inspire other revolutions and other revolutionaries to, to rise up. And so um, at the point where you said to press record is because I was going to say that I'm a descendant of Jamaicans and my ancestors also, um, we were, people were sent to that, uh, to that specific country at the time when they were trying to start slave rebellions. And so, some of my ancestors also helped to liberate some of the, the our ancestors that were in Nova Scotia, and it's a, it's an international right. thing. I think that the fight for freedom, oftentimes when we look at it in the media or when it's discussed, it's usually located or isolated in one specific individual. Um, so although I'm glad to hear that there's a Martin Luther King Day, we often are unaware of who else around that time was also supporting him, who were also the black woman who were also inspiring him and, and like uh, holding space for him. But I look at revolution and I look at uh, the, the fight for social justice as being something that's a, that's a international rather than just located in just the one individual. Uh, the reason why the colonizers wanted your ancestors to speak French, my ancestors to speak English and others to speak Portuguese and Spanish is so we wouldn't be able to speak the same language. But there's a strength in being able to, um, well, first, there's a strength in the fact that we all speak abonics. There's a strength in the fact that um, that there's Creole, that there's Patois, that we learned ways of being able to communicate with each other despite and make it so they couldn't understand what was going on. So while we were able to coordinate even more revolutions and fight for our freedom. So it's important to know that um, there's always a collective of, of movement that's there. Our social structure likes to isolate it into one specific person. But that's why when I hear that there's someone who's from Haiti or even a descendant from Haiti, I want to remind them and even to remind uh, myself uh, that there were ancestors who were able to fight off. Um, uh, it's like a, a David and Goliath type of thing, is that there mm -hmm. were ancestors who were able to fight off oppressors and uh, that was one of the most uh, successful um, uh, revolutions that took place from the time of, uh, of slavery. So we always got to give respect to our Haitian fam out there. Good morning. Wow. Good morning. I, I mean, good, well, this is five five p.m. for me. In this, uh, good. This good morning. Good afternoon. It's it's wow. What an what an introduction. I just I just love how it's it's. I feel seen. When you mm -hmm. mentioned that as Haitians, we are one of the original freedom fighters. For sure. And, and also, it's one of those revolutions that is not mentioned a lot mm -hmm. outside, of, outside of our islands or outside of mm -hmm. our people, us Black people, right? Um, and sometimes seldom Black people know about the Haitian revolution yep. and, it's, and it's, um, its power and it's um what it represents in the in the mm -hmm. contemporary history right it's a 
it's, it's a major revolution. And, and you mentioned that you are of um, Jamaican descent and, and the connection that we have between Haiti and Jamaica is yeah. a strong one um, mm -hmm. because although people think of our revolution, Haitian revolution of, you know, being signed on January 1st, 1804, what is really forgotten is the fact that we started that revolution 11 years prior in three. And it's by someone that is that flee from Jamaica to to come to Haiti, Duty Bookman. Oh, Bookman. Interesting. Um, so Book, Bookman is is someone that you know he's not Toussaint Louverture. You know he wasn't doing the diplomatic work. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and and he wasn't doing the diplomatic work of of dealing and signing with the British or the the, the French mm -hmm. or whatnot. Duty Bookman was was the one kind of like he was a, a voodoo priest, right? Um, he was he was the one that like held a ceremony to mm -hmm. kind of like decide that this would be the beginning, the beginning of the fight. But it's interesting because at the moment of that ceremony, everyone already felt free. That's yeah. that's that's like it's the it's the it's the is the origin of is the genesis of it where people started fighting but at that moment people already were free at that ceremony and and it's that the link that we have with, with jamaica and haiti so i was um i always have a little thing butterfly in my eye uh, in my in my heart yo i feel it i know yeah man i feel it while you're talking about <laughs> this bro when, i feel when, it when when people recognize this and and in Haitians we've been trained mm -hmm. to where wherever we show up as the first thing we say my name is this I'm Haitian and I'm the yes. first free <laughs> it's like, it's yeah, like that's the, for real that's the script so I'm 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 thrilled to to see that um, and that you that you mentioned that we are I, I need to start with the introduction but it entering in that ramp with you mm -hmm. already. It's another vibration that I already feel. So, so Which thank you for that. Thank you. Thank um, you. I am with welcome David Archer to um, Teach Reach podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, the, the knowing that you're of Jamaican descent solidified the bond. We mm -hmm. have a mutual friend that that friend that we have in in common when he when emailed me and put me in contact with you i value him a lot big shout out to kim on this yeah, on my track. Respect, kim. uh um solid guy and 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 i i value people that he hang out with that he knows so so for me it was already like let's just let's just go let's have you on the podcast yeah, and not only right. because you are you are related or connected to kim but it's because reading your bio and and everything that i that i see that you do and 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 the title of the work that you do you are a um a psychotherapist um mm -hmm. and i'm very on that podcast we are very um advocates for mental health understand the value of therapy in our in our communities mm -hmm. um for our people in our relationships so i'm gonna let you the the space to 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 introduce yourself who who are you what do you do um so welcome but what do you do yeah sure so thank you again tangi for um for allowing me to share the space with you so um i mean 
my professional designation is a psychotherapist. And what that means is that my job is to help people to be able to overcome the stresses that exist from mental health disorders. But uh, in addition to being a psychotherapist, I've called myself an anti-racist psychotherapist. And I look at mental health and the origin of it as being very different from just something that is in our diagnostic statistical manuals. So sometimes when we are trying to categorize someone as having a mental health issue, we're going to look at a certain checklist and we'll say whether they have this for this amount of time and these symptoms and all of that, which is helpful. But the idea that I'm trying to share with the world is that some of our mental health stresses actually come from the social structure. I'll meet a lot of clients that will tell me that they believe that they are broken and then I'll listen about their family. And then I'll listen about what's around them. I'll listen about even the society that we're in. And I help them to see that even though they are the ones that are coming with these symptoms, the trouble sleeping, the overthinking, the negative thought loops, uh, eventually when they heal and recover, they recognize that it was really the system that was sick and not them specifically. We are trying to understand that there is no enemy within the individual. We want, to, we want people to stop the war that is with themselves and to recognize the true enemy. I believe that there's an enemy of humanity, which is the one that's causing climate change, which is the one that makes it so that there's income disparities, which is the one that makes it so there's people starving every single day. I feel that one of the main enemies of this world is greed. I believe that one of the main enemies of this world is insecurity. And uh, because I, uh, in the way how I conceptualize distress and problems in my literature, in my books, is that there's the binary complex trauma cycle. On one end of the cycle is white insecurity. Other people may call it white supremacy, but I found out that many white supremacists feel insecure about themselves. Otherwise, they wouldn't have these types of actions and these behaviors. So on the other end of the spectrum is black suffering. And the way how the insecurity works is that it projects its negative traits, the ones that it's uncomfortable with, into black people and into blackness. So that's why white is all white is all right. And black is always like bad, bad luck. Uh, you get black listed, all these things. So white is supposed to be holy and, and all of these. This absolute, this binary is what causes most of our problems. When a person who considers themselves as black or non-white identifies with feeling as if they are worse because of their skin pigmentation, because of their complexion, then that validates this idea of white supremacy. So it means that the person who is insecure with themselves doesn't really need to develop self-love or self-compassion, if they can make someone else feel worse about themselves, then they will do the work for them and put themselves down. So that, and so this is why whenever we are talking about racism, you will hear a lot of people who will speak about anti-racism in the same way how I'm speaking about it, but slightly differently, is that they will talk about how bad black people are. They will, talk, they will overemphasize the fact that we are uh, murdered or that we are put into these uh, into these separate categories, but they're not talking about the aggressor. So for me, because I was also trained as a couple and family therapist, I'm always thinking about systems. We cannot solve this problem by only talking about the victim. We have to talk about the oppressor. 
when the oppressor heals from their suffering, they will no longer uh, cause a victim. When people start to think that the first victim of racism is white people themselves and the violence that they did towards themselves, which is why they came, they wanted to escape from their own continent and go elsewhere, anywhere but there, then we can come to understand that even though I call it anti-Black racism and I believe that it is my responsibility to help my people and for my people to be able to find ways of helping themselves, we are not able to resolve this unless white people also heal from their suffering and uh, that this idea of whiteness is uh, looked at with extreme scrutiny. Um, I had a client today, uh, this is a, a, a black person who I was trying to ask them to, what is the color that represents healing for them? And then they said white, and then they felt upset that they felt that white, why is it that as a black person that white is going to seem as if it's a color of healing? which says a lot about our social structure and the way how it programs people. But I told her that, um, you know, she was like, well, I don't want to think that white people are, are the thing that causes healing for me. And I said, wait, well, remember, if you looked at a white person recently, they're actually not white. Actually, sometimes they're pink. Sometimes <laughs> it can be a little beige. I've actually <laughs> never seen a white person who was as white as the screen on my Word document or as, this, as uh, the paper right. that I have. Because if they were right. that white, they'd probably have to go to the hospital. So we have right. to understand that even the idea of saying that someone is white, what whiteness is, is a social construction. Even the idea of the negative traits that are put into black people is a social construction. So even though this concept of race is completely fictional, it has real results. So we have to work within that framework. But it's important <laughs> for us to understand that in order to address this issue that impacts us, you not we won't get too far if we only address who is being victimized. It's also that the oppressor has some work to to heal uh, themselves as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's well put because it puts it at a as different angles that I, I can honestly say that I've, I've I've not like wrestled with before because we always put the system on one side and the individual on the other. Mm -hmm. And what, what you explain here seems to kind of like bridge that, that whatever we feel within the individual comes from the system mm -hmm. and we need to work in tandem with the individual, with the system that we have in order to help the individual, but, and not only, one subset of the individuals, those that those that are being oppressed, marginalized, but also the people that are that are um, operating that system 100%. and putting the oppression. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's because um, the thing is that even though you said you're from Haiti and I'm from uh, Jamaica, um, our ancestors are from Africa. Um, right. The difficult thing with the white racists is that they don't really they don't realize their ancestors are from Africa too. <laughs> like mm. the thing is that um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was speaking about this at a, on a podcast recently, and also there's a book uh, called How to Argue with a with a Racist, which uh, which I cited <laughs> in my first book, and they said a similar thing. They said that um, well, we we all know that if we're fi following a scientific base, is that mitochondrial Eve, the first person who we could consider as a homo sapien, the first ancestor from 
which one of the first humans who existed was an African. This was a dark skinned black woman who we mm -hmm. all came from. Okay. So it's just to say that there was more genetic variability within the African continent than outside of it. So the people who left uh, Africa, the Europeans, the Asians, uh, indigenous uh, to other uh, continents, they have more in common than the black people that were inside of Africa, meaning that um, this ability to create different skin uh, pigmentations came from black people. You will see people that have curly hair in Africa. You'll see people with straight hair. You'll see people with lighter skin and darker skin. It was from Africa that that ability to make it so that there's this variance in all the different so-called quote-unquote races came from, but they still lump us up and say that we're just black. Mm. So even though uh, black itself is like a misnomer and it doesn't really make sense considering that there's so much genetic variability, it's, so we know it's not a genetic thing. We know it's not a scientific thing. We know that it's a social thing that has been created. Um, so even though I know that those are the errors that are there, I still find that when I'm writing about anti-racist psychotherapy and speaking about how black people are specifically treated by our social structure, this generalizes to other uh, quote unquote marginalized groups. The problems that exist with the white and black dynamic also exist with the male and female dynamic also exists with the straight and LGBTQ dynamic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Wherever you find that there is one group that has power versus another group that has less power, you will oftentimes see the same binary complex trauma uh, thing uh, replicate itself. So for women, although instead of it being black suffering, it might be female dominance, uh, I mean, female submission versus male dominance. These parallels exist because these are all socially constructed. They're not, they're fake. They're, they're not real categories, but they carry mm -hmm. real consequences. And uh, to add on to all of that is that the unique approach that I take is that is one that is trauma informed. So we are able to actually heal from these distorted ideas of our society. Each of my clients that comes into my virtual office because of COVID, I just prefer not to get viruses and stuff. So that's the reason why I work right. virtually. So the thing is that even if I'm going to get a client who is a white man, I'm still going to ask about their racial trauma. I will still ask about yeah. their experience of gender violence because it seems as if uh, all of us are, are uh, victimized by the same system and by the same enemy. And when a person is able to heal from their experiences of racial trauma, from their experiences of gendered violence, not only is it that they're able to uh, rewrite the narrative of their belief that they choose of how they'd like to live their lives, but they become better advocates for their friends and their families mm -hmm. who might be uh, in the same situation. So this ability of healing, this ability of self-compassion, this is the gift that keeps on giving. We need it so that more people can heal and recover from their trauma so that they can become better activists, that they can become better able to support the people that are in mm -hmm. their families. And when they heal, others around them also benefit from that healing. So this is why I wanted to develop um, a form of a philosophy around this and a way of healing people that is the most efficient that I've seen. And I want to spread it with the world and let people know that uh, uh, that we're born to heal.
Right, right. And you mentioned self-love, self-compassion mm-hmm. as kind of a of I don't I don't want to use war terminology, but as kind of like a tool, let's say like that, a tool mm-hmm. that can that can help guide people. How does one develop self-love and self-compassion? Great what question. Good thing I have my tea here. I have to be on the top of my game with these types of questions. Okay, as I sip from my tea, let me uh, let me think about this. I think that um, so I have uh, my son upstairs. Okay, so it's, I'm a recent father, mm. and the interesting thing about thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks. The interesting thing about an infant is that you don't have to teach them how to have fun. They know how to smile. They know how to make loud noises and enjoy themselves, generally speaking, except for if if you leave the room and then because of object <laughs> permanence, they think you've left forever and they cry as a okay. Anyways, this is me complaining about my parenting, but uh, it's just, uh, I, I think many parents, uh, parents can relate. But it's really just to say that uh, we don't have to teach people how to love themselves initially. We don't have to teach curiosity. We don't have to teach even confidence. We don't have to teach uh, um, self-love. The child comes into the world ready to smile and ready to enjoy themselves. As they become socialized, when we become adults, we lose some of our imagination. You know, we're told that you can't have an imaginary friend. We're told that, you know, like you shouldn't daydream. You shouldn't instead, you should focus on your work and all these things. As we get older, our imagination, I think, gets a little more confined because we are supposed to be a man. We are supposed to be a black man. And this is what it means to be these things. I personally believe that the way how the society fits us into these boxes is traumatizing. And I believe that when a person can heal from the trauma of being socialized in these ways, being racialized in these ways, uh, that natural creativity emerges. It spontaneously emerges. It's like as if, Um, we have to clear out the baggage. We have to clear away the suffering that envelops us. And then we get to that core that has always been there. Mm. I have not met a client that was unable to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, it's like once they, once they heal from their trauma, all of a sudden, it's like, you don't necessarily have to work so hard on defeating the limiting beliefs because they already have that self-love that's in there. All what we need to target is the self-defeating, uh, the tr- the the trauma reminders, the processes and the patterns that led them to believe that they are bad and all these things. And then for some reason, underlying all of that, the belief "I love myself" has always been there, and it's natural mm-hmm. for them to engage with it when the noise is cleared from their consciousness. Wow, wow, that's that's like peeling the the layers of an onion, onion, right? Yes. Like to, to get to the core. And, and it seems like the, that metaphor has you, as you were speaking, started to form in my head of like the core has always been there, but those protective layers that we put in there just to survive, to move yeah. through the world. Right? And that's, right. that's important. What you said too, is that we must remember there is no enemy in ourselves. So even though we put up these protective layers that make it so that we are distant from others or make it so that we are not connected to our bodies, these are things that our younger versions of ourselves did for survival, 
That is why there is a fight or a flight or a freeze component to them. The child did it to survive, to make it so that we could continue to have relationships, even though it may be un, uh, maladaptive for us to have some thoughts like um, there could be like uh, bad thoughts that we have about ourselves or even suicidal thoughts and all of that. On the outset, from the outside observer, we're going to judge it and we'll be like, why is this person dissociating? Why is it that they're not, not getting their homework done on time? Why is it? That? But the person themselves unconsciously and sometimes a little consciously as well is that they're doing everything that they can to make it so that they can operate in our toxic system. Mm. So this is why, once again, I'll say that there is no enemy in ourselves. So even though we might have these symptoms that make it so that we have these layers of the onion and it's hard to get to the, to the core, it's those problems that bring a person to therapy in the first place. So is the problem really that bad if it put you on the path towards healing? Is the suffering so, like, is it really that you are the person who is the enemy if you have brought yourself on that path to realizing that you're the hero who's going who's gonna to win at the end of the day? So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I put a lot of energy and work into letting people know that there is no enemy within them. There might be a system that is hostile. We know that in the news right now, there's a, in the States, there were protests because there were five police officers who killed uh, uh like a, a young man. So we know that that itself is problematic. We know that these, the, the way how black people are viewed doesn't matter if you're a police officer, if you're still, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a black police officer, the job title itself, there's still mm -hmm. issues within that field that need to be worked out. But it's important for us to know that although those things are external, we may internalize negative beliefs because we see these things. These negative beliefs are the are the they're the beginning of that journey of healing. Right, right. And I, I I appreciate when you mention those things that we use to survive. It's I feel that it's freeing to know that those things are not to be celebrated necessarily, but they have to be understood because that's a a defense mechanism that is yeah. necessary to progress into that into that that system and that culture. Um, when you talk about, you mentioned um, that the system is sick, right, and that that's causing um, a pressure on the individual to adapt to that toxic environment. We said that the the individual himself or themselves practicing self love. But how do we translate that into the system? Because I feel like because we live in, 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 in groups and as social animals, we are bound to build the system. How do we, how do we heal the system? That's, that's most my, mostly my question. How do we heal that system? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that the best way that I can think of is that first we have to heal ourselves. And I say this because... There's sometimes that I'll have some clients that are uh, that are activists, and the activist knows how to fight. You don't have to tell them how do you, <laughs> you don't have to tell them how do you, how do you get outraged or how do you um, do like a, a protest or organize something. They know how to how to do the, the battle, but they do not always know how to rest and how to recover. And so it is very important for us to know that what we consume from our social media 
um, can vicariously traumatize us. I try to limit all of my social media consumption uh, only for like business things and only for connecting with uh, like uh, like for my books and for my advertisements mm. and all that. But then I try to shut it off because we are either creating or we are consuming. But when we are using social media, we are being consumed by. So it's very important for people to know that the stress of being in the activist uh, role and the position sometimes can be challenging, much like the therapist. As a trauma therapist, my work is to sit and listen to people who are talking about suffering. That can be toxic as well. I could, like It's hard for some therapists <laughs> to be able to do this type of work because you're sitting in you're sitting in the abyss with the person for a prolonged period of time. And then you got other clients who are also going to bring you into that same, that same abyss. That's why it is imperative for us to be able to heal ourselves and also to find a sense of purpose and a sense of strength. And I believe that when we are able to heal, when we are able to find ways of being able to have appropriate resources that protect us and that uh, make it so that we feel more connected to our bodies and to the bodies around us who are also fighting for justice, then it increases the chance that a change can take place. I think that most of the problems for why the society lacks change is not always just the negative people, because there are malicious people that get into positions of power for the purpose of ego and all that. All of that exists. A lot of it, I think, is just the neutral people. I think that there's a lot of people who can make change, but just don't do anything, who just don't. (laughs) They can make something, but they're either too lazy or not not even too lazy. They're just too distracted or they're not Mm. focused on like taking a side either way. And so I believe the best way that we can make systemic change is if we heal from our suffering, if we can pressure these people who are on the fence about whether the world needs to survive the next 20 years because of climate change. Um, right, and also because of like the other, the other things that we don't see that are on, uh, that we don't see on the news. But if we are able yeah. to heal from ourselves, then we are in yeah. a better position to be able to make effective policies that make changes at the systemic level. And then <laughs> I think that's the best way of being able to bring about change. Right, right, and there's something that you mentioned in there in the, the activist role. Um, I feel myself within the conversation that we're having right now. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling seen, I'm feeling charged, but I'm feeling called as well. Um, I am a, a teacher, I teach social studies. <laughs> so awesome. I, I, am, I, I am prone to bring current events into my classroom. Right. So, so sometimes you feel that you regardless if I want or not, and oftentimes I want, but regardless if I want or not, I feel like sometimes I'm myself wearing an activist hat and it, and then you feel the exhaustion. You feel the tiredness. You yeah. feel the, 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 there's no way I can do this because, because I don't have an avenue to, to evacuate yes. <laughs> what I'm trying to bring. Right. Okay. And, and there's, there's, I feel and that that's what in the, that's what I'm, I'm very happy to have that conversation with someone that is a psychotherapist and that is like, you know, aware of those things, because there's something that you brought in there when you mentioned the ability to rest. And, and I would like you to dive a little bit. Of course, deeper my pleasure. Idea 
that idea of rest, please. My pleasure. What, what? So, um, uh, I think um, <laughs> I think I'm still in the process of introducing myself. So let me uh, let me mm. also talk mm. about my other books because I think that it helps <laughs> to explain this answer. So my first book is anti-racist psychotherapy because I wanted to make it so there was a neurobiological explanation for racism that made sense for me and made sense for people mm. around me because people mm. would say racism doesn't exist. So I wanted to kind of, not all people, of course, we know who these people <laughs> would be, but sometimes it would be helpful for the activist to get the extra uh, scholarly ammunition to mm. be able to plead their cases. Mm. So I made that book mm. to help people outside of my reach so that they can do better work. So it's been well-received. Uh, it's it's a decent book. I'm kind of biased, but I think it's a good book. Second <laughs> book was called uh, Black Meditation, 10 Practices for Self-Care, Mindfulness, and Self-Determination. This book was because during the pandemic, I realized that there were a lot of Black people who were looking for help from a Black therapist, but couldn't find one either because of the distance where they lived or because of other policies and other systemic barriers that are uh, in, that are, that there are way too many of these systemic barriers that are there. So I wanted to make a book that would, that would even represent if I were able to be their therapist, then if we could work on cultivating a positive black identity. And that book emphasizes meditation, but also it me it emphasizes the importance of being able to take care of yourself, even like cultivating a practice, knowing that we're much more than just our physical body. So we also have to care for that spiritual essence. We also have to cultivate black joy and we have to find ways of anchoring ourselves to positive states that we can turn on and turn off when we need them. The third book is called Racial Trauma Recovery. Uh, racial Trauma Recovery is my the book that explains how to do my rhythm and processing integrative clinical framework. So mm. I developed a psychotherapy approach and an approach to healing and a technique that makes it so that we preserve the wellness of the therapist while we are helping people to, to feel good about themselves. So in the the burnout that happens with the activist, which happens with the therapist and even with the teacher and anyone else who's in a communi community with other people talking about hard topics is oftentimes because of, I think a part of it has to do with what are called mirror neurons. So for example, if I'm watching TV and I'm watching someone play basketball, even though I'm not a basketball, I'm not a fan of sports. I prefer my video games and, the, and I prefer to write about papers and read about therapy. Mm. This is what I do. <laughs> Even if I'm watching someone play basketball, there's a response my body gets to seeing them play ball as if I am going to pick up a ball, as if I am mm -hmm. going to run. The body is mimicking what they're seeing if there is this level of like, um, like rapport or that you feel attached to it. It's like if you watch mm -hmm. a video of someone eating delicious Okay, uh, like some griot or some jerk chicken or something. Okay, so I'm gonna <laughs> feel like my mouth is gonna salivate. Now I'm salivating just thinking about this. this Me too. <laughs> so, so the thing is that what we look at, we're almost experiencing. Okay, so when the activist is talking about racial justice, when the therapist is sitting in the depths of the abyss of suffering, when the teacher is also talking and engaging with these things, we are also experiencing it. So that is why it is so important to have ways of communicating and doing our work 
that do not backfire and harm us. So rhythm mm-hmm. and processing, I'll explain generally, is that it yeah. is uh, uh, an approach that takes into account the fact that we are working virtually and we are able to use um, YouTube videos. We are able to use music. We are able to use images of cats and like and cute pets that people have in order to reprocess trauma by the by the basis of memory reconsolidation. So my therapy looks very different from other people's therapies because we are making it so that the client is choosing what is the video that resonates with them. We are making mm. it so that the client is choosing what is the resource that resonates with them. And because these videos are hilarious, the therapist is laughing too. I, I don't know how many times <laughs> I laugh in, in a day, but my clients are helping me now because I'm laughing even more mm. because I'm seeing them heal from these experiences of suffering by choosing things that make them smile, choosing things that make them that are either compelling or completely awesome to watch. And by and and how we use the approach makes it so that not only is it so you will think about the stressor, but then you will contrast it by thinking about this thing that brings you pleasure, brings you joy. And so there's a balance that happens. When we're able to feel the sense of pleasure in the present moment, the brain will then generalize and then put the thing that causes the trauma and the suffering back into the file cabinet so that it's not mm-hmm. feeling as if the trauma is live and direct in the present. So mm-hmm. by doing this, the therapist, it reduces the chance of vicarious traumatization is that we don't actually need to dive into the depths of suffering in order to get people out of there. So this is a revolutionary way of being able to do trauma therapy. We do not need to use content-based approaches for therapy in order to get the process going. So I, I, for many of the people that I've helped, I don't know exactly what it was that happened in their trauma because I don't need to know. And I, all I need to do is activate the process that leads them to heal. And when we do that, we can have people heal from long-standing, decade-long traumas, phobias, OCD other forms of like uh, of of pathological associations in a short amount of time and when we heal from it it's done and it's permanently uh recovered from so uh it's just to say that this technology it exists we do it every day there's times that we go to sleep and then you wake up and you don't feel as stressed about the thing that bothered you because your brain did something in the background that we don't know of exactly so this is a way of being able to trigger it and to to follow the scientific principles that lead it to happen and we can do it with people watching videos of baby goats wow <laughs> so now now i think uh, i need to supply my algorithm with with a little bit more um joyful yeah, yeah man joy- <laughs> We need a bit more joy. Uh, I tell my clients at the end of the session, I say, so you remember the homework? And they'll say, what was the homework again? I say, practice feeling awesome. Right. We don't have to rehearse the trauma outside of our sessions. The the only thing you rehearse is visualizing that image that makes you smile. And then Mm. what happens in the body when you visualize that? And then they will say, there's a calm feeling, a light feeling. And that is what we are trying to build the relationship with. Because the traumas and the stresses have made it so that the body um, feels unsafe, because some of our traumas were given to us without our consent, we are going to consensually heal 
We are going to choose to feel completely awesome whenever we feel like it and get used to feeling awesome. And then going back to what you said before is that that is at the core of that onion. The core of the onion is that awesome feeling, that great feeling that there's no reason to feel joy, uh, but for the sake of your existence. And so that is, that is so, um, there's a, there's a key word you mentioned here when you say that a lot of our traumas, all our traumas were given to us without our consent. Yes. And it, it just, I don't know. I felt something unlock within me. It's Yo, that's like what I'm saying, bro. This is knowledge, man. This <laughs> is talking about freedom jump. fighters and all. Yo, it's, it's the ancestors, jumping. man. The ancestors are undefeated. <laughs> they are. They are here with us. Like yes. it's it's unbelievable because it's as if that we need to give ourselves the permission to be in a different state because it is not our. We didn't give our consent to receive that. Now, one thing that I would like to, to, to touch on that is what about the generational pressure that was put on the person that gave us that trauma or that, that put us mm-hmm. in that position? What is this general, generational trauma, but what about mm-hmm. generational responsibility as well? Right? How do we deal with those, those two things? Mm-hmm. Well, expound on that. Let me talk a bit more about it, just so I understand. Well, what I mean is that if all traumas that we receive, we didn't give our consent to, Mm -hmm. and if also we know the idea that trauma flows from one generation to another because we are connected, how do we deal with the person that inadvertently gave us that trauma when themselves they didn't consent to receive it when do mm-hmm. we when do we break the chain how, mm-hmm. how, that kind of reaction how do we break it Great question. or is it so is it so embedded in the system that the only way we can do is just having permission to con- to move on but, mm. but still, so it's wrong for me i can give you my answer and I'm sure there may be many answers that are out there, but I'll just, I'll explain what I tell to my clients and because I feel it's a universal or maybe not a universal thing, but many people may have this type of issue is that um, there are traumas that they've experienced maybe horizontally. So from your existence, there's things that you went through that impacted you. So it could have been in your upbringing, it could have been at your work, it could have been relationships, all of that stuff. Then there's that vertical transmission. There's things that you that had nothing to do with you, but you still inherited it. So it could mm. have been poverty as a child. You didn't do anything to, to inherit this. <laughs> it could have been racism. You didn't, what did you do to deserve these types of things? And some of these vertical stressors it's like they're so like intense and they've been it seems as if they've been there forever that people believe they identify with it. They say that because I'm black, this is why I can't do such and such a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Money is not something that's for me. People like me is for other people. All of that. OK. So what happens is that we have to remember that uh, 
there are things that we do inherit from our parents and from our grandparents that are actually real, okay? These are going to be like, I'll give this example, is that a lot of times when there's people who have had post-traumatic stress disorder, and so they'd have the hypervigilance, they'd have the avoidance of trauma reminders, like whoever has the clinical diagnosis for it, they can, if they do not heal from that, they can pass that on to the next generation. So the next generation is going to have a vulnerability to mental health stressors that was vertically passed on that has nothing to do with anything that they that they went through. There's studies about this for uh, Holocaust survivors. There's studies for this for also Rwandan genocide survivors. So these are <laughs> neurobiological changes that do take place that are passed on. Okay. However, um, we don't know how far that gets passed on because we only started studying this stuff within the past like hundred or so, or even like 50 or 40 years. Okay. Right. Um, when I worked with indigenous people, um, when I was uh, doing some work a few years ago, they would have a belief that you're doing things today that impact seven generations later. So we don't know if some of the trauma that our ancestors inherited from slavery, that, that it, whether that impacts our nervous system functioning today, we don't know if that, if, if it stopped. Because, uh, and I'm, I'm going around, but I want to just explain this point. Yeah, yeah. When a woman is pregnant with a female fetus, that female fetus has all the eggs that it will have throughout its whole life. That means that what grandma went through, grand, uh, granddaughter's going through. Okay? That, that change, that trauma mm-hmm. that happens to grandmother is already being passed on to that next generation. Mm-hmm. So I want to just say that so that we understand it's not in our imaginations. There are traumas that right. have been inherited. However, um, strangely enough, when I'm working with people, one of the first questions that I'll ask them is, are there any traumas that happened before you were born that still to this day impact you? And then I'll ask, is there any racial trauma, any gender depression, any uh, national trauma, cultural trauma? Fascinating thing is, as I said, I developed this for black people, but white people still have this. I asked, uh, there was a client that uh, is a a white woman, and she is speaking about uh, the language pressures that exist in Quebec. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just to say that this thing, there are things that we inherit. And when we target these things that happened before we were alive, as if they were present day stressors, the, each of these traumas have a negative belief about the person. They also have a bad feeling that, that is elicited. And so our job is not only to heal from the horizontal traumas, but also the vertical ones as well. When we are able to say, when I think about my grandfather or when I think about slavery, or when I think about the war. I feel calm. I feel compassion in my body. We effectively treat right. our traumas and the traumas of our ancestors. Right. Oh my God. This is. Thank you so much. For, <laughs> for, thank you so much. I, I, I can, you know, I can only, I can only say thanks. Uh, um, but thank you so much for that, for that in-depth, in-depth exploration and and explanation as well. It's, it's something that I'm always interested to know what brought people to do what they are doing right yes. now you are a, you are anti-racist psychotherapist 
did you, what, what story, what brought you to be an anti-racist psychotherapist? Um, can you illustrate a little bit on kind of like your, a, a life narrative that brought you there or was it a conscious decision of things that you have noticed and you're like, this is what I can contribute? What led you to be where you are right now? You know, there was an interesting thing that happened uh, a few years ago. I was uh, studying uh, at a university. This is when there were, um, in Quebec, there was the Red Square protests where people were trying to mm. protest because they're trying to increase the tuition fees and all that. And I remember I came close to, uh, there was a police officer who was going to pepper spray me, even though I was just a one black person and there were a whole bunch of other white women that were around. They were social work students, so it was mostly white mm -hmm. women that were around. But the mm -hmm. police officer singled me out and all of the students saw this and they, it was as if they saw the, the, the real life experience of what we were studying. Okay. All right. And I remember going to, because uh, I was pretty upset about the whole uh, situation because I was like, why are these people on our campus threatening me and I'm studying? This doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And I remember at the time, someone asked me about protesting and I told them that uh, I didn't bring the protest to the police, but the police brought the protest to me. And that's my explanation. The social structure creates anti-racist psychotherapy. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's my, that's my answer. Wow, uh, wow. What, what I also want to say is that um, since I'm on the top, I hope I'm still in, this is so long. Oh, uh, brother, in, brother, you are, brother, you are on the topic. And that's the thing that's mm -hmm. very interesting about the way we started the conversation about our people. There's a certain way of our people to communicate. Yes. Where, where, where there's so many angles that of course. you can go to of course. you have to pay attention and you have to be very witty to be yeah. like, i'm gonna follow you there yeah and man. i'm gonna come back yeah You're so for me mm -hmm. for me that's that's we still we are within the topic and then within the topic and within the topic 100 yes so, there's layers so brother <laughs> there's layers to this thing yeah man. Man. Uh, what I, yes, hundred percent. I want to say another thing. Another thing is because uh, I'm actually working on a fourth book, and I'm excited about it. Uh, right, uh, right. This, this fourth book is called Black Mountain: Fight for the Future. Okay, and so yes, uh, Black Mountain was uh, when I was younger. Before being a therapist, I was an artist. Okay, I was always interested in the fact that we can create things uh, just by writing mm. on a piece of paper. You create art. Um, and if you practice enough, then you can, uh, create comic book, uh, little things. So I have, I have like a pack of like comic books, uh, that <laughs> I got from my mother's, uh, closet that she kept like from when we were younger. And I, I was looking at this after I completed racial trauma recovery and I was looking at it and I was like, yo, this is awesome. I was like, this art actually looks pretty good. I was like, man, okay. Yeah. And, and I was like, how do I, now that I've written three books about psychotherapy and racial trauma and all this, I wonder what I can write next. And mm, I looked at mm. the comics and I was so impressed by the fact that I had this creativity back then. And I was like, I wonder what would happen if I, cause now, it, cause it takes a lot of, I have much respect for all illustrators and designers and graphic designers. Cause that takes a lot of time to make one, one square in a comic. So right. then I was, like, I was like, yo, what would happen if I made, all of, if I rewrote the story, but made it about anti-racist psychotherapy. 
And so mm. the Black Mountain is a team of people that are called fighters, that they gain this indigenous knowledge to be able to um, to shoot fire from their hands and icicles from their hands and to destroy uh, things. And the reason why they need to destroy things is because there's this multinational, inter, it's um interplanetary uh, global monopoly, uh, monopoly corporation that is trying to destroy the planet uh, and extract its resources for the sake of profit. So this this book is a mix between Japanese fighting anime, anti-racist psychotherapy, and trauma-informed care. And also, I, I gotta put maybe I gotta put some Jama- some uh, Haitian food in it. But in order for them to restore their energy, because they can get vicariously traumatized by all that fighting that they're destroying tanks and blowing up these things. Right. So they need to meditate. Right. They need to burn some incense and they need to. To, to meditate and also they just eat need to jer- eat some jerk chicken once in a while and the last meal they eat at the end is uh some aki and some kalaloo which is the uh, aki is the national dish of jamaica because i was like right I, I realized that a lot of the japanese anime and the uh, and even the superhero things like you see the superheroes that are out there um i feel that the way how they're fighting like i was just like what if they use their fighting to fight systemic racism and so that's what the book mm-hmm. is. The book is, mm-hmm. what if these guys that have these superpowers decided, you know what? Mm-hmm. All of our people are being oppressed. These guys are trying to make it so that the world is uh, is devoid of resource. There's so many floods that there's barely any place for people to live. Uh, AI is completely dominating the, the, uh, the job market. Uh, what would happen if we used our powers to defeat the enemy and um, for them to get stronger, they need to work on their traumas, of course. And when they work on their traumas, it accesses new abilities. So I'm excited about it. I I just wanted to make something. Yeah. No, of course that is, that is something. So, so it's, it's, it's black futurism. Yeah. Yeah. it's black future except that's the thing is that um and i think because i'm sending it to i sent the first draft to my editor and he said well the problem is these aren't humans because the first thing that happens is that earth is destroyed Mm. earth has been destroyed a long time ago (laughs) so these are technically aliens but i still wanted to make can i share it on the screen can i just i know that this is probably audio so no one is going to see this but i'd like to just share it on the screen so i can of course man of course go for it for sure it's it's just that um, I wanted to make it so that they actually, oh, do I even have it? Okay. I will have to give me a second. This is important. Of course. This is of important. course. Of course. Have, Let's go. Search, Let's go. Search for this. Uh, yeah. So Let's I wanted go. to make it so that, cause back, back when I first made it, I didn't color in the characters because I wasn't thinking about like race like that when I was younger. Mm. I remember mm-hmm, once mm-hmm. there was a white person who saw my drawings and they said, how come they're all white? I said, they're not white. I was like, well, how come they're not black? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think that I needed to color this for this racist person. But <laughs> but yeah, like, um, hold on one sec. Is it sharing? Let me try it one more yeah, time. Yeah, it, it started. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so you're going to see that. Hold on. Is it is it loading? Yeah, it's loading. It's getting there. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Oh. So, so what it is is on the. So I wanted to at least make them dark skin, but the guy in the right. middle, he looks like he's he's uh. So he's actually dark skin black, 
but in his previous right. country, in his previous uh, planet, they did this uh, genetic bleaching is what they do to black people. Ooh. They do a genetic bleaching. Ooh. So then it removes. Uh, so then if you're going to be black and be able to be in their society, it bleaches you to the point where your hair is now straight, but you're always going uh -huh. to be a light blue tone. Your hair is the same color as your skin. So he's the angriest out of all of them. He's the one who's like, yo, I got to come and rescue you guys. So we come and fight these guys off of our planet. So that's why on the left is firearm. On the right is black blob. In the middle is right. Zodicon. And these guys are going to wow. save the planet. Brother, this is, well, first of all, this is myself not being <laughs> someone that can illustrate anything. Like if you ask me to do a little stick figure, good luck. <laughs> Okay, but it's not about me. It's not about my ability. Mm -hmm. Despite if I could, it, it's I, I I love the visual. Thank you. And and I would even ask like I would wish that I could share that with our audience when we when we publish. This Yo, much respect. Well, it's 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 so beautiful and 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 also there's a commentary that I find in there, a social commentary when you're talking about genetic bleaching. Yes. Right. When, talking about the idea of colorism yes. within black communities and, and our relationship to color, even yourself, when you were speaking about, you know, making your characters yeah. when you were, when you were younger, you were not thinking about those, those lines or the scholars for you. It was more about the character and what they are able to do. But here you are being confronted with having to attach a color to the character and then having one part, one of the characters being, um, you know, subject to, to genetic bleaching and, and how that affect them within their own character. Yes. I like that. I like that. Yeah, man. Uh, it's like, I'm writing it. I'm like, this is so fun. And I, and I realized that this is to add on to what you said is what do we need to do as either activists, people who are engaged with this type of work, we need to cultivate black joy. We need to, mm. this project is not to advance my therapy reputation. This is something that I was like, yo, this was so fun for me. And I spent so much time right. writing this, this comic. No one's ever going to see these comics because like they're in my, they're in right. my basement, you know, but I was right. like, yo, what if I write a book that I always wanted to read when I was younger? And when we, mm. I think that that's, that's also guides my therapeutic approach. I'm trying to be the therapist I always wanted to meet. I'm trying to learn how to make it so that the world is a bit easier for my son. And when mm. we think about things in that way, I think that these are things that may prevent the burnout, that these are, this brings us back to our purpose of why we got into these fields in the first place. Mm. I love that we we get to a point where right now naturally your your son enters the conversation it's all linked and um it, I, and i'm very passionate about fatherhood mm -hmm. ever since i i became a father 14 14 years ago my eldest is 23 nice my youngest is 7 wow so so um, you can keep me on the speed dial when you yes. have, you know, your teenage. Yes, I'll be, I'll, I'll be there to help. Yes, but, we'll call you <laughs> in tears, this. and I'm like, why, why is this? I uh, know the tears of Brother. Lord. Now I'm used to all the mountains of diapers. I never understood. Brother. I didn't know that we could create so many diapers. 
I didn't right, understand. Right. <laughs> I have these explanations for psychotherapy, but I never, I never really and, realized. And, and you, you see, that's when you realize that life is greater than us because you are a well-educated man. Yes. Very, very well-versed, mm-hmm. very smart. You wrote books for Pete's sake. Yes. Not yes. one, three of them, fourth, fourth on the way. This is the fourth and one. And then you can't, and then you can't understand why we have that mountain of diapers. Yes. So you can see how mystical it is. But yeah, but I do want to say about the education piece though, is that um, it's important for everyone to know that uh, that what I, I'm not trying to do any of this to to demonstrate exceptionalism. I'm just a representative of my ancestors. That's it. Mm-hmm. We all are representatives of our ancestors. We all, we mm-hmm. all have the ability to do these things, but what do we need to do? We need to heal from our suffering. When right. we heal from right. our suffering, we're better suited to be able to create. When we stop trying to consume the social media, this madness, when we stop trying to get consumed by these messages that say what a black man is, then mm. we get into the sphere of being able to say, yo, who is the black man I want to be in this world? What right, is it that I right. want to create? And so I hope to inspire your listeners. I hope to inspire anyone who's who's even hearing this to know that uh, that anyone, anything that someone else does, you can do it too. Mm. It's just that mm. what we need to do is heal from our suffering. And then you will notice that there is a light feeling, a good feeling. And that feeling is the feeling of intuition. Because we're right. survivors of trauma, we think that the bad feeling in the stomach must be the intuition. So we'll make decisions out of fear, out of frustration. Because we have been through heartbreak, we'll think that the bad feeling in the chest is the thing that should guide us. What I'm inviting people to do is to think about what joy means for you. Think about what gratitude means for you. You will notice a certain feeling and it's that that allows me to write. That's right. That's beautiful. I I, 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 I like the the apartheid, the little like bracket that you make to talk about the fact that, you know, all that you do is not to, to know, present, you know, exceptionalism, because I know that it can, it can weigh heavily on us black people to feel that we have to be excellent in order to fight that system mm-hmm. and to fight the representation of us. I, I, I want to circle back to sure. fatherhood. What does, what does fatherhood means to you? Oh, what does it mean to me? I mean, that's a good question. Uh, There's so many, let me just uh, think about it in this way, is, again, is that I I look at it from from the philosophy that I have. There are people that I meet that have been harmed in the past and terrible things took place. For them to get a complete recovery, it is my belief that they have to be able to confront that younger, vulnerable aspect of themselves and be able to let that part know that they are loved and that they are appreciated. Mm-hmm. What fatherhood is looking like for me right now is that I'm I'm providing live and direct for that younger version of myself. I am I am learning how do I give a greater sense of of a parenting to this child. Mm-hmm that like based on the foundation of what I received, knowing that my parents Mm. did the best that they could with all the strengths and all the limitations of that. Now that there is this child, 
who looks like me. He's technically the younger version of myself. Of course, he's. I don't expect he's going to be a psychotherapist who publishes books and plays video games. I don't expect that. I might encourage it. I might say, yo, by the way, you know, firearm and Zodicon and but but it's, it's really to say that i think that fatherhood is is about that it's about being able to um uh as from the perspective of the father i feel that it's about mm. me being able to provide something that was greater than what i received and to make it so that this person will learn to to deeply and completely love and accept themselves mm. wow a message a message of love that's that's something that we we hear that parents love their kids, right? When I was growing up, yep. I always struggled with that idea. I thought like, you know, some some of my parents, I won't name names, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. some of my parents I feel like, you know, maybe they love my brother more than I than myself. Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. then and then you become a parent yourself and, and you feel that the best thing that you can describe within you that describe that relationship that you have to that being that you brought to this world is is the word love and and sometimes you can't even quantify it you can't you can't you, can't, you know you you can you can only say that this is the love that you have and mm -hmm. and you know if we put aside all the complexities of parenting that can exist of people that you know are in systems or they were forced to have a kid etc we put that aside but if we put in the idea of like people who desired their baby and, and wanting to have their baby and had the, the chance and it's an immense privilege as well it to is. have that knowing the system that you described that we live in yeah. <laughs> right it's a privilege and, and when we know all this and we realize how unconditional the love of a parent can be for their for their child, right? Um, it's it's so amazing the the journey and the and the voyage that you took us on with you know with everything that you do with your with your perspective with the the different strategies rhythm and processing strategies that you develop with your with your patients patient. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what? could be some challenges that in your line of work as an author, as a father, what are some challenging challenges that you are wrestling with and that you kind of like, you know, it, it, in your line of work, is it's difficult to deal with those things. Mm -hmm. uh, the difficulty is that the social structure is unrelenting. The difficulty is that people come with these problems and believe that they are broken i think that the difficulty is that uh that people believe that the negative beliefs that they have are theirs and they take the responsibility as if they were the ones who created these things that is the thing that uh that infuriates me and that bothers me mm -hmm. this type of work um but as i said is that the the reason why rhythm and processing was developed it wasn't only from the decade or so that i was developing it and thinking about it and working with people it's the clients themselves through my work i was trying things that worked and didn't work and my clients would let me know this works or this is not working and it was always a live and direct feedback thing of okay this person is still crying or this person is still frustrated <laughs> This is not the thing that we need to do right now. And so 
like I owe this development to the people. It's a, it's a therapy that's developed by the people that I, that I met with. And so while there are these things that are discouraging, I have to say once again, is that in my field, they will talk about vicarious traumatization, but I have to speak about vicarious growth. What is it that happens? We know what it is that happens to the person who's watching videos of police brutality too much. We know about what happens when, even if you're not watching the videos of police brutality, if you're just watching Hollywood and seeing that black people are the special class of people that always are the worst people. Like if you're watching any of that programming, we know the effect, but what is the effect of seeing a person heal and recover from something they believed they could not heal from. Um, I posted it online for a, a group of therapists, but I spoke about what what is the impact that it has on the therapist when miracles are no longer seen as the exception, but the rule of progress. And so that's the question. What if it were possible that we could create something that actually heals and that the changes are permanent? So while I am, I do have anger and I do have frustration towards the context that has created these problems, towards that vertical transmission of suffering, towards that horizontal transmission of suffering, it's as if people haven't learned. Uh, it was very, you know, at the beginning of uh, COVID, I said, you know, we're all in this together. And then suddenly there were conspiracy theories. And then, you know, the, the cell phone towers are the things that are the... Okay, so anyways, <laughs> it's just to say that. Uh, the, the, the frustrating thing is that we are not learning from our past mistakes. The frustrating thing is that the social structure harms these innocent individuals. It's that I look at people and I can see, as I said with uh, my son, I can see that we're all just older children. We are all just older infants. We are all deserving of love. But we are, but we find ourselves in some situations that are difficult. So, but what happens is this inspiration that I get that keeps me going is the fact that people can heal from these things. It's the fact that I've seen too many people change their lives and I've received too much feedback for me to believe that there's any going back here. I, I can't, uh, now that I've seen this, I, I don't believe that, uh, I don't believe it when someone tells me that they're broken. I can't believe that anymore. Mm. I've I, too many people have told me that, and then after too many awesome things have happened after. Right, right, right. This is this is amazing, and 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 thank you for for sharing all this and for enlightening us with you. your knowledge and the things that you do in your communities and where you are involved. We are at the point of the podcast where. I love saying that we're about to land yes. because I, I feel like we took a trip to 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 the past. We took a trip down to our ancestors. We took a trip to, you know, to what to look forward in terms of like how we can create black joy and how we can yes. live black joy, how we can live in joy. Um, before we, we land, I always ask my guests to share two teach and one reach. The two teaches are two things that you know inspired you over the last couple of weeks couple of months like something that you're proud that you saw either in your own life in other people around you those are the two teach and the reach is a reaching foul something that is that you like it's a big no-no it's something that you would like you know the people involved in it 
could be better. Uh, um, you know, like society do better. Sure. Like that that's the sure. result of two things. So um, share that with us. I'd like to start first with the reach. Just because uh, right. I prefer to end on a positive note, but the reach is, is, is <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a psychological thing. There's a primacy and recency right. effect. So I want to make sure that people mm. know the, the problem first. The problem is that mm. um, uh, it's, it's kind of exactly like what I was saying before is the problem is that we, we are unaware of the, ex- of the extent to which social media music that is spoon-fed to us, media that is given to us, that they impact our perspectives about ourselves. It's like there was, I I have black clients, I have clients from all over the world and because uh, I'm in Montreal, so there's people from all cultures, LGBTQ, I get all types of individuals. But it's just that when I get black people that will say negative beliefs about themselves or even a black woman that would say like a, a belief that she believes she shouldn't be here or something like that, uh, that itself frustrates me. And I think that this is something that uh, that oftentimes comes from a society and from a way of looking at things and consuming certain media that uh, that has a negative view of us. So this is kind of the reason why I want to just create this type of literature, these types of books to just exist so that there is something that's a little different so that we can think of anti-racist psychotherapy as opposed to the racist psychotherapy that we can choose Mm. to read books that are about, I didn't think about the genre, but you're right, that are about Afrofuturism instead of like things that are going to say the light side is the white people who dress in white and the dark side is the people who dress in black. It's like... Why is it that right, this, right. that this types of stuff exists? Uh, no offense to all you Star Wars fans, I don't know, but it's just—is <laughs> it why? Why is it that it's like the dark side is black? So that's why the mm. thing is the enemies in this book—they're all using wearing white because it's like and mm. and my characters, as you might have seen, they're wearing red, black, and green, right? Because the, those right, are the colors. Right. And the female, the female uh, supporting cast—they wear black, uh, yellow. And green as well for my Jamaican uh, parts. Anyways, that's the reach. The reach is what is it that we are consuming that makes us believe that these that we should acquire these beliefs, that we should take responsibility for these beliefs, that we should say the narrative is that black women are blank. I told the person, I said, whose narrative? And she's like, well, you know, the narrative. I said, no, whose? I didn't say that. So we need to start to think, what is our narrative and what isn't? And if we're going to talk about inspirations, that's easy. My son, if I see when I see him, he has joy that is in his eyes and nothing happened. I don't know. Maybe he filled his diaper and he still has this joy. How is this? That's inspirational for me. <laughs> and then the other thing that's inspirational is my clients. I'm seeing people that... Um, the, the social structure will say the mental health condition is going to marginalize you or make it so that you're seen as uh, disabled or make it so that you're seen as lesser than um, uh, other able-bodied individuals. But these people inspire me every day. I see people that have been through terrible things and they will come to the session and they will say like, um, my problem is fear. But they are braver than all the other people who don't go to therapy. 
they've mm. decided that they wanted to confront the suffering that exists within them. That is the bravest thing a person can do. So my inspiration is going to be my son. My inspiration is going to be the people who the society has rejected or who has uh, rendered as uh, being downtrodden. And uh, uh, I can't help but being inspired by by uh, these these types of people that exist. Right, right. Well, that's that's amazing. Thank you for <laughs> Thank you. for sharing this. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's um and, and on bravery as well, right? It's it's knowing how the within the system that we live in, doing those acts to work on ourselves, to cultivate self love. You're right. This is bravery. Yes. This is the, this is the the people that we need to celebrate mm-hmm. and and. and space to be celebrated as well yeah. because of because of taking giving themselves the permission to heal right you got it and and that, that is something that is really amazing and thank you for for all you do um before we we wrap up i'll, I'll leave the space for you to to you know plug where people can find you read sure. your books uh, we are looking forward I'm looking forward to the Black Mountain. Oh, thank you for the future. Wow, that's um, that's I'm encouraging. Looking, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to that part. Um, but but I'll leave you the space to to share. You know where people can find you. Sure. So again, uh, my name is David Archer. Uh, my website is archertherapy.com. Um, Instagram handle, I guess slash Archer Therapy. Uh, Facebook, same thing. Just search for Archer Therapy. And um, the one thing I do want to leave. Um, you can get the books to support this this idea and this philosophy. I do appreciate that. Um, but I'll also ask that even if you don't get the books, just to remember that you are a person of value. It is very important for us to understand that the value does not come from the social structure or from the external uh, trinkets and the distractions that are there. It comes from us being able to express gratitude to ourselves. And it's very simple. All we need to do is just think about in this present moment, is there anything that we can feel grateful for? I have a roof over my head. Uh, I have, you know, I have breath in my lungs. And when we think about these things of gratitude, these statements of gratitude, there might be certain positive feelings. And so I'd like, I'd invite people to just notice that positive feeling and just to meditate on that. And it's just important to know, again, we spoke about the onions, is that that feeling of kindness, that feeling of lightness that is within when we think about gratitude, that is the essence of who we are. And our job, I believe, if we are to change the oppressive system, is to make it so we connect to it, so we can help other people to connect to it as well. That's beautiful. You you just made me think of that little segment that you added at the end would change the podcast from teach reach to teach reach preach yeah because you just preach a beautiful you just preach a beautiful message here brother right teach reach preach there we you go know? man that's that's there that's, we go that's that's amazing well thank you thank very you. much for your time today, david it was it was positive it was i felt you know i felt um full right full of of energy and i feel i felt seen as well and and i know that those conversations if it's not because you're having them all the time that they are not difficult so they be but so i appreciate you. you know you um creating that 
that space within yourself to share those with us. So thank you very much. And for anyone that's been listening, um, I, I really value all your your time that you spend with us. And, and I, I hope that we can take um, David's, mes- David, David's message to, you know, continue into our day and, and go within within ourselves with with curiosity and, and confidence and courage. So thank you very much. And really, um, it's been a, a, a tremendous pleasure to have you with us. Many thank blessings. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Teach Reach podcast. This podcast is produced by Dr. Lemstein Productions, mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give us a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at teachreach underscore podcast. For our regular listeners, we truly appreciate your support. Thank you. You can find more information about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com. Until next time, Kembe Palagi. Hang in there. Don't give up.